Feast of the Ingathering, Feast of Weeks, Feast of the Pentecost. And it was a celebration of, of the fact the fields have been harvested. What we ask God to do, he has mercifully provided. And if you remember, Jesus was crucified at Passover and then that very next Pentecost uh, there in the first century, right after Jesus's crucifixion, 50 days later, you remember what happened on that day, the day of Pentecost? That was the day that God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit coming to the church. So on the day of the feast of ingathering, God sent his spirit. The spirit inspired the apostles to preach the gospel. Peter stands up and preaches the foremost sermon and there was an ingathering of souls an ingathering of the, the New Testament church being built on that day. So God, the father wrote and ordained the feast of Pentecost to preach Christ as well. There's a bit of a theme here. If it's in the old Testament, it preaches Christ in some way. We got to be careful, like not to get weird. You're know, like that stick laying on the ground. No, no, that's people do some strange things sometimes with, the, with these things. But God means these details. When you're reading the Old Testament and you encounter some ceremony, a cleansing, and there's some peculiar part of it, um, somehow this is preaching Christ. Somehow this connects to him. These feasts, these festivals, God ordained them to preach Christ. Well, the last feast of the year is one we've not yet talked about. It was the Feast of Booths. Um, some of your Bibles may use the word tabernacles there. So booths or tabernacles, both of those English words are translating the Hebrew word Sukkot. Um, you can find that word, by the way, even in our English Bibles um, back in the book of Genesis when Jacob was traveling around the land um, before it had been given to them as an inheritance. And there came a place where um, he settled down and he built uh, little huts, little shelters for his livestock to have refuge from the weather from, uh, these little booths, little tabernacles, that sort of thing. And he named the place I've always pronounced it Succoth, but I learned this week that it's Sukkot, okay? The proper pronunciation is Sukkot. He named that place, and you'll see that word in the Old Testament, S-U-C-C-O-T-H. That's this word right here. It's a word that refers to a small little shelter. You might think of like when you were a kid and you went and you built little forts out of branches, or at least you men in the room, you built forts and these kinds of things. That's kind of the idea here. What God instructed, Leviticus 23 would be one of the places you could look to here. He gave the command that in the generations to come, that the Israelites were to construct these little booths, little tabernacles, these Sukkots in the seventh month at a specified time, make these shelters out of branches. And they were to actually sleep outside in them during this season. Uh, we've kind of joked in the past, it's like God ordained camping. Families would go do this. The family would sleep in this little shelter. But here was the point. God said that the purpose was to remind them of the wilderness. So the Passover meal for generations looked back and remembered the Passover. The Feast of Booths looked back and remembered the wilderness. That they lived in these booths, these little shelters in the wilderness. And so they were to recall the grace that God gave them in the wilderness. So in the wilderness, 
what all happened? Think back to some of those uh, sections you've read. Let me give maybe just kind of a five minute bit of overview of what all happened in the wilderness there. We can sum it up by saying that God gave abounding grace. God provided, God was bringing his people to the land of promise. And all through that wilderness time, God was providing, God was giving grace. Now, you probably also remember that there was an awful lot of complaining that went on in the wilderness. If you remember this, there was judgment that occurred as well. But, but the overwhelming theme is that again and again and again, God provided, God provided, God gave grace. God gave them the manna. Bread rained down from heaven. Now, it wasn't supposed to be for 40 years, but because of their disobedience, it lasted 40 years. For six days a week, for 40 years, God miraculously rained bread from heaven. They were in a desert wilderness. They were not able to acquire food for around 2 million people. God rained bread from heaven. God provided. And even in the Sabbath itself, so I mentioned six days a week, God did this. On the seventh, if you remember, God would not rain down bread from heaven. Uh, the wilderness is the time that God revealed the Sabbath principle. That six days a week they would work, but on the seventh they were to rest, but still God provided. Through most of the week, if they would gather more bread than they needed and think, oh, I want to keep some for tomorrow. Do you remember what happened? Overnight, it grew disgusting, okay? Grew rank, grew foul, and it wouldn't happen. But God told them on the sixth day, they were to gather twice as much, and God preserved it overnight. And on the seventh day, he did not provide bread from heaven, but he provided for his people. God gave them their provisions. And guys, as you're studying through the wilderness stuff, Okay, anytime you hear somebody say the Old Testament is no longer for us, okay, it's not just wrong, it's devastatingly wrong. God means those wilderness truths to be just some of the most foundational truths to understand just what it means to be a Christian, to be, for God to be our God and we to be his people. God was preaching all of these truths about daily bread, about the point of life. God fed them. God gave them the water out of the rock. God caused their shoes not to wear out and their clothes not to rip, tear and wear out. Now, that's one of those miracles that they may not have thought about, but God brings it up in Deuteronomy 8. For 40 years, I caused your shoes not to wear out. I, I sustained your clothing because they had no way of making more out in the wilderness. God gave his grace to provide. The people would complain and grumble, and there were times of judgment, but still, day after day, God provided. All of this is, is meant uh, to preach these things. God taught his people about what really matters. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So track this parallel with me. God saved Israel out of slavery, okay? Pharaoh was murdering the baby boys. He saves them out of slavery, makes them his own people and says, I am bringing you into your own land. I'm bringing you into your inheritance. They're on their way journeying to riches, but on the way walking through the wilderness, they complained about the food. See any parallels, Christian? 
God has saved us out of slavery to sin, death, and hell. God is bringing us through a season of wilderness, okay? When you're in the wilderness, God provides, but it's not yet paradise. When you're in the wilderness, it's not glorious and it ain't supposed to be. It's the wilderness. When we're in the season of wilderness, we're journeying towards our inheritance until we come to that banks of the Jordan River and look across by faith. Look, for, for thousands of years, Christians have seen these parallels. That's why we have the hymns that we do. That's why we have the hymn, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Christians have seen this parallel uh, that just as Israel needed to cross the Jordan and come into the land of promise, so we who are in Christ will one day come to the banks of the Jordan River, metaphor of death, and we will cross over into the land of promise. Look, this stuff is not accident. God designed all of this stuff to preach the gospel. He's designed every bit of this to preach. So God meant for all of that stuff to be meditated on in the Feast of Booths. Think about just how kind of special it would be as a family. You're sleeping out in a little hut outside and then dad begins to tell the story of the wilderness journeys. And he explains these truths and teaches through this kind of theology. It was a week long festival that gave them occasion to talk about and meditate God's grace the truth that he taught in the wilderness. Also, God instructed for it to be a feast of joy. Now, you might remember that some of the feasts, the, some of the holy days that God prescribed were, were not so much about celebration. Some of them were about afflict yourselves through confession of sin and humble yourselves. But some of them were meant to be feast of joy. He said this one was a feast of joy. It was a seven day long festival. They made the booths meditated on these truths. And just as God meant every other holy day to preach Christ, this one does as well. And if we were to look at every single detail of how it did that, we, we would be going a different direction than what we're gonna do today in trying to uh, connect this to the Lord's Supper. What I wanna do in this message is just show you some of the ways that this feast preaches Christ and how that helps us understand another element of the Lord's Supper. We've asked this question in our study, why a meal? Why a meal? The ordinances are ways that God preaches the gospel, but not so much with words. We gather every week and we preach the truth. We preach the word with words. But the ordinances are meant to preach the gospel through um, a metaphor, the acting out of some action that he's given us. So if God wants the ordinances to preach the gospel, then how does the Lord's Supper do that? Well, we've been answering that through the year, but we've, we've asked, also asked the question, why a meal? Why the act of eating? We started to answer that. Uh, the first answer we saw is that it pictures our table fellowship with our Father. Um, our Father, the King, has invited us to His table. We have a seat but that's not the only answer. There's more. In this message, I, I want to preach this truth. The act of eating helps us understand how we receive Christ. 
the necessity of receiving Christ into ourselves. It's meant to preach the gospel. And another element of the gospel is how are we saved? So, so listen, guys, just as the part of the gospel of who is Jesus, it's a major aspect of the gospel. How has Jesus um, made atonement for sin? That's part of the gospel. Another major aspect of the gospel is how do I get this myself? So how do I get the benefits of what Jesus accomplished? How do I receive that into me? That's the part of the gospel that we're helped to understand by the Lord's Supper. So we're going to focus on that one part. So here we go. You may know that the book of John is written explaining seven signs that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Seven signs that prove he is who he says he is. Okay, so if you didn't know that before, now you do. Okay, the next time you read through the book of John, uh, look for that. John will even at times say something like, this was the second sign that he performed, okay? The book of John also has seven I am statements from Jesus. So if you remember, the name that God revealed um, at, to Moses at the burning bush, when Moses said, when I come to the people and they ask who sent me, who should I say? God revealed the holiest name that we have been given on earth, the name Yahweh. Uh, I believe scripture shows that when we get to heaven, there will be holier names of God that we cannot yet hear with these sinful ears. But the holiest name that has been revealed to us is this name, Yahweh. Our English Bibles translate this, that word as I am. So if you remember, God told Moses, tell them I am has sent you. And so in the New Testament, when Jesus said uh, to a group, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Okay, Jesus was saying something significant there. Jesus was declaring that he is not merely a man. He is the divine son of God who has come in the flesh. And the Gospel of John records these I am statements. And there are a couple few of them that surround the Feast of Booths. So... In, in John 6, you can flip there with me if you will. We're going to look at some of the verses from John 6. John 6 occurs right before the Feast of Booths. And I want you to just look at the way that God designed for these things to happen in the order that they did for a reason. John 6, just one of the greatest chapters of the Bible, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He feeds the 5,000 and shortly after there's a group that comes to him and uh, they want Jesus to uh, perform another trick. You know, do something else for us, Jesus. Uh, prove who you are. Uh, work another miracle. So they're testing Jesus. And one of the things they say is, what sign will you show us that you are who you say you are? Moses gave us bread from heaven. So it's kind of like, okay, Jesus, what are you going to do? If you claiming to be the Christ, what are you going to do? Well, if you notice kind of that uh, verses 30 to 33 section there, if you'll look, Jesus replies, you know, first of all, Moses did not give you bread from heaven. You got that wrong. My father gave you bread from heaven. Then watch what he says after this. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God, it's that is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 
So do you see the connection? Do you see the parallel here that Jesus is making? Guys, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. When God the Father gave the manna from heaven, he was working another way to preach Jesus. The, the, the connection is made here. Manna came from heaven to people who were in need of food for life. God provided, they ate, and they lived. They had life. Jesus has come down out of heaven from the Father to a people whose souls need something. There is a food that the soul needs for life. God provided to those who receive Christ, we get life. We live. Okay, so we see the parallels there. Okay, once again, preaching Christ. He's trying to get them to see past, to stop obsessing about the food. Okay, look past the food. We're talking about something eternal here. And so there's, there's one of these I am statements. Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. I am the bread of life, he says. Um, look at verse 38 there. Let me read some sections here to see some further teaching. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. I want you to really cling on to all that he's going to say about believe, believe, behold the son, believe in him. And what will you have? You will have eternal life. Jump down to verse 47. Keep, keep following. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven. He's speaking of himself. I'm the bread of life, he said, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, speaking of Jesus, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now watch this. Jesus is about to start saying some things that confuses them and are some hard words. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. 
Now this is once again one of those places that we've gotta be able to read poetic figurative language, okay? There's been a lot of confusion in church history that has come by people wanting to take this kind of passage literally. Jesus is not promoting cannibalism here. Jesus is not uh, talking about uh, real and literal eating of his flesh. Now one of the things I also want you to notice here, at no point in this is anyone taking the Lord's Supper. It's an important point because Jesus is preaching about a figurative way that we eat and we receive Christ. But there have been some groups throughout history that have taken this and have said, well, this must be talking about the Lord's Supper. It's not as if this bread literally becomes the body of Jesus or this blood literally becomes his blood. It does not. Jesus is preaching figuratively here, just like when he said, I am the door and you must enter by me. Jesus is not literally made out of wood. This is poetic language. This is figurative stuff. Jesus is preaching here about a food for the soul, a need that you have for himself. There is a way that you must receive Christ into yourselves. In fact, he says, if you do not do this, if you do not eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, you do not have eternal life. You will die in your sins. You will die the second death. You will enter hell. You must receive Christ. So what does it mean to receive Christ? It's important that you catch the numerous times in this passage that he makes the connection here. Eat his flesh and believe on Christ. Over and over he makes this parallel that what it means to receive Christ is to place your true trusting faith in Christ. What we're being shown here is what it means to come to God in the way that he is ordained. And we're going to come back to that. But he spells it out over and over. You saw it there. Verse 47, he who believes has eternal life. And I, and I really need you to grasp this. I really need you to be convinced that this isn't just like the Baptist take on things. No, no, no. This is what he's saying here. He says, eat my flesh and you have eternal life. Believe in me and you have eternal life. What's the connection? He's not talking about two different things. What he is showing is that the true coming to him in faith, receiving him by faith is this eating of his flesh and this drinking of his blood. We're going to talk more about what that means, but hang on to all of that. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He preaches the manna from heaven. And then we come to chapter seven. In chapter seven, there's the occasion of the feast of booths. And what are they supposed to be meditating on at the feast of booths? Everything that Jesus just preached. They're supposed to be meditating on the manna from heaven as well as other things as well. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem. They're at the feast. Verse 37 says that on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, the Jews called it Hoshana Rabbah, there was some special stuff that went on. 
And Jesus takes that occasion to preach some of these kinds of truths. Over the years, the Jews had come up with a, a, a couple of activities, a couple ceremonies, if you will, to help them remember some of the things they were supposed to remember from this uh, wilderness journeying. One of the ceremonies that they had come up with was that priests would go and they would take these giant cisterns and there was this uh, drawing of water that they would do. They would then carry it into the temple complex. And this was done with great celebration and singing and dancing. They would march around the altar and then they would pour it out on the altar. And it was meant to remind them of the water from the rock. It was meant to remind them of that, those occasions, it happened numerous times, that they're in a desert wilderness, they had nothing to drink, and God told them, come to a rock, okay, which makes no logical sense. He's displaying miraculous things. They come to a rock, and water flows out of a rock, enough, by the way, to care for two million Israelites. Water out of the rock. By the way, remember, 1 Corinthians tells us that the rock was Christ. The rock followed them in the wilderness, and the rock was Christ. Everything's about Jesus. Over and over, we see this. So it was meant to remind them of this. Well, on this day, what does Jesus do? Um, I'd be inclined to think it happened during the actual uh, ceremony itself, but the text doesn't say that specifically. But on the day that they're doing the water ceremony, Jesus stands up. There are these multitudes and many thousands who are gathered there. Jesus stands up and he cries out, verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Okay, so again, Jesus is not talking about literal water there. As if when you're born again, you become a Christian, you never get thirsty again, you can never be dehydrated. That's not what he's getting at. There is a water that your soul needs. There is life-giving sustenance that your soul needs. And what Jesus is preaching is, you will find it in me. Come to Christ, come to the rock, and he will provide the water that you need. And then the verses right after that go on to explain that this he spoke of the Spirit. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit. That when we turn to Christ and we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to us and becomes a well that never runs dry, giving life, blessing, grace. Every bit of joy, every bit of hope, every bit of faith and encouragement that is godly that you have inside of you, that comes from the Holy Spirit's ministry inside of you. The Holy Spirit is a living water inside of us, springing up to eternity, producing eternal life. So Jesus preaches these things. There, there is some more that happens there that maybe on another day um, we'll talk about in John 8, Jesus talking about the light of the world. All of this is connected as well, but this is significant stuff. So here's what I'm hoping. What I'm hoping is the rest of your life, when you read through the Bible and you come to the Feast of Booths, Okay? You remember and you see the connection to the gospel. You're able to see Christ and understand how all of these things are meant to preach him and show this. But I want to take some of those things and try to show how we can be helped to understand the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, 
I am the bread of life. And if we are thirsty, he invites us to come to him and drink. Jesus gives us the invitation to come, to come freely and receive grace. In Revelation, he even spells it out. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and take of the water of life without cost and drink. He invites us to come and receive. And and friends, what this is preaching, it's preaching through metaphor. It's helping us understand how we approach God, how we relate to God, how we engage with God. How, How is it that we receive from God? See, false religions understand understand the situation like this. You come to God or the gods, whatever they may be. Remember all the false religions, okay? Romans 1 tells us they are corruptions from the true, the truth about the one true and living God. And you'll notice that Satan over and over again, he keeps putting some of the same elements in various false religions of the world. But false religions understands it like this. When you come to God or the gods, you bring something in your hand. You carry something with you and you give it and then there's an exchange. You bring something to God and if God approves of it, then he's kind of like, okay, I'll give you some grace. I'll give you some blessing. I'll give you eternal life. You bring to God And there's an exchange that takes place. Works-based salvation views the situation as kind of like a business deal with God. You bring good works, he has to pay you what you deserve. You come with something in your hands. Works-based salvation, okay, basically every other major religion of the world outside of the gospel is works-based salvation happening in some way. They all got their own varieties and flavors of how they spell it out. Maybe it's good works. Maybe it's participation in the sacraments. One of the very frustrating things, but it's something Jesus said would happen, is that even under the name of Christianity, there are numerous groups that preach a pagan gospel, a pagan false gospel that says, you be good, you bring your good works to God and God will reward you with eternal life or maybe even good luck or prosperity, whatever it is. You need your good works to outweigh your bad works and and your good works God will take and then he will reward you with eternal life. This is false religion. This is works-based salvation. It's nothing more than paganism with Jesus sprinkled in. For many of us, you know, this is what we were saved out of, this kind of idea. What we see the Bible teach is that number one, you know, the Bible explains to us, there is no way that we are able to give God anything that benefits him as though he needs anything. And we're not able to commend ourselves to God as righteous so that he rewards us with eternal life. You know, I I am not able to go back into my past and somehow undo or make up for 
the ways that I have broken the law of God and I deserve to be punished. So the justice that I deserve from my past, I must pay before God. And scripture explains the wages of sin is death, eternal death, separation from God. So even if you were today able to like really, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and decide from this day forward, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be righteous. And let's just pretend that you were able to never break the law of God again. You still cannot undo for what you've done in the past. But the other issue is you aren't able to clean yourself up. You aren't able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps so that you're able to move forward from this point and be righteous. You are unable to make yourself clean, to make yourself fit and righteous in order to come into that kingdom of heaven, which is a kingdom where only righteousness is allowed. God is not letting any wickedness whatsoever into his kingdom of heaven. Otherwise, we'll mess that place up just like we've messed up this kingdom. You can't undo your past and you can't fix your future. You have nothing that you are able to bring to God whereby he will reward you with eternal life. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in a place that we're desperate. Okay. But we all kind of start off with this idea that we're not desperate. We're beggars, but we don't know that we're beggars. But when we come to understand the gospel, The gospel begins by explaining to us our situation and our inability to make ourselves righteous, to make ourselves right with God. We're in a place where the gospel exposes our desperate place. The gospel shows you that you're a beggar so that then you begin to groan. I need God to somehow give something that I cannot do. And that's when you're ready to understand the manna from heaven. That's when you're able to understand our need of Christ and what he's done to make atonement for sin, that we must receive something. We come to God, not with our hands full of good works. We come to God hungry. We come to God as beggars. We come to God needing to receive Christ. There is a food that your soul needs. And if you don't get it, you will not live. And that manna is Christ. There is water that your soul needs. You must receive from God or you're not going to get it. And you come to Christ and you receive it. See, what this is about is it's about our posture before God. When you come, even like today, when you pray, When you approach God, with what posture do you imagine it happening? Do you come to God uh, with your hands clenching onto what you believe are the good things that God needs to reward you for? Do you come to him with uh, with your your hand out thinking you're going to extend something that you can benefit God with? Or do you come with your face fallen on the ground looking for mercy? Listen, what you believe about salvation, about how you receive salvation, will determine that. The gospel reveals that the only chance you and I have is if God gives grace. 
Not, not an exchange of works if God gives grace. And see, part of the point we, we got to see is the very definition of the word grace. The very definition is you cannot earn it. If you're talking about something you buy, you earn, or you exchange, that's not grace. Okay. Um, by the way, the Bible just so geniusly, um, numerous times, um, God, in order to preserve the meaning of certain words, he defines words in the Bible, right? Because over time, people corrupt and change the definitions of words. Okay, God has worked so that words would be preserved in their meaning through time. What is love? We have 1 Corinthians 13. God has also done this with the word faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11. Okay. What is grace? God defines it in scripture so that the, the definition couldn't be corrupted through time, though people try, though people try. Uh, turn over to Romans 4 with me for a second. Romans 4. In Romans 4, find verse 4, and look what we have here. Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. So if you work for something and you receive, what you receive is not grace. That's the wrong word to use. The word to use there is wages. You work for something, what you get is your due your wages. It's not grace. Look at verse five. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Later in chapter four, he goes on to say, for this reason, God made it according to faith so that it would be in accordance with grace. Grace is the word we use when I have not earned something I do not deserve it, and a kindness, a gift is given to us. That's grace. Uh, something similar over in Romans 11. Romans 11, verse 6, uh, after preaching some uh, gospel of grace there in the early part, look what happens there in verse 6. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He's defining the word grace there. If you work for it, what you get is not grace. Grace is what you get when you don't deserve it. So then what do we see here? He is explaining the situation we have before God. You cannot come to God with your hands full of money, good works, religious devotion, and think that you're going to be able to give this to God. And in a business transaction, he then give you what you deserve. Scripture says our best righteousness is as filthy rags in his sight. You have never worked one good work that was so pure and so wonderful that God thought, wow, I've, this is just wonder. You've never done it. Your greatest prayer you have ever offered up had enough sin in it to condemn your soul to hell. You cannot bring anything to God whereby a business arrangement is going to take place. We are dependent on grace. We're dependent on grace. So here's the point. How will you have life? How will you have eternal life? You are dependent on grace. You must eat. 
you must drink. And the manna from heaven is Christ. You must eat his flesh. You must drink his blood. Not literally. I just want to make crystal clear. What is happening when we take the Lord's Supper is not the actual body and blood of Jesus. This is a figurative metaphor that preaches these truths, that reminds us of these truths. And God goes to a lot of trouble to make sure that we understand this. We receive Christ, not by eating the Lord's Supper. We receive Christ by faith by faith. That's the significance of seeing those parallels when he said, eat my flesh, you have eternal life and believe and you will have eternal life. God goes to a lot of trouble to preach this. Do, do you remember um, over in Mark, so you Wednesday night crew, when we looked at the, the statement that Jesus made, unless you are converted and become like little children, you cannot have eternal life. What, what point was he making there? Well, again, how do you view this whole thing of how you come to God? How do, you view, how do you view it? Jesus says to view it, you are a little child. And by the way, that the word that's used there, technon, that is for like little child, like toddler. You are a little child and you come to your father. Dads, when you provide for your families, you do not make your children bring something in their hands. Like, sorry, Johnny, don't get to eat tonight. You didn't bring me anything. That's not how this works. You provide for your children because you love them. That's who you are. This is our posture when we come to our father. You do not come with good works or money or whatever or the sacraments or any of these things in order to receive from our father. We come as little toddlers and our father gives us grace. We receive from his hand. We are dependent on grace. We are starving people in a wilderness who have no way of making bread and manna rains from heaven. I was sharing the gospel with a man one time. Um, the man was, was actually Jewish and we had a deep discussion on the gospel and he mentioned that his trouble that he had with the gospel was not with Jesus himself. So he had read the New Testament he was very self-aware, knew quite a bit about the Bible. He, was, he understood the claims of Jesus and such. His hangup was not with Jesus. But this is what he said. He said, the problem that I have is I'm the kind of guy that when I go to the movies, I don't want you to pay for my ticket. I, I don't like it when people have to do things for me. I want to do it myself. But do you see what he was getting at there? The element of the gospel that he found objectionable was not Jesus himself. It was the whole concept of grace. It was the whole concept that we do not receive because we deserve it. It's that God has to give grace. That Jesus died in the place of others. We come to God and receive grace and not wages. We receive grace by receiving Christ through faith. In John 1, 12, um, the scripture says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Again, do you see the parallel? 
He says to those who receive Christ, they get eternal life. Those who believe in his name, those are not two different actions. Those are two ways of explaining the same thing. To believe in the name of Christ with true trusting faith is to receive the Lord Jesus into ourselves. It is to receive Christ. So why a meal? When God gave this ordinance, why did he create a meal? Because it preaches, among other things, this truth. You must receive the Lord Jesus by faith. You must not think of the arrangement that you need to go get some religion. You must not think of the arrangement that you need to go make yourself righteous. You must not think of yourself as sufficient. You must not believe that you're already good enough. You need to understand, you must receive Jesus into yourself. As food comes into the body and it gives life, so we must receive Christ. As water comes into the body and gives life, so we must drink from the rock of Christ. So Christian, come and eat. Come and eat. This food here does not give you eternal life. Jesus gives eternal life. But this act preaches that reality. And if you have never turned to Christ, so if you've never heard this language before even of you, you must be saved in order to have eternal life, all of this is kind of new to you. This is Jesus's invitation to you. Revelation, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus invites you to come, come and eat, come and drink. Not the Lord's Supper, not today, because we believe you must receive Christ before you partake of this. We also believe you need to follow in baptism as well before you partake of the Lord's Supper. But come to Christ and receive him. It, Jesus invites you, come. Over and over, this is the invitation that he gives. And when I say that, come, I know that you could be sitting there thinking, all right, but that sounds nice and religious and all, but what does that actually mean? Like, what do I actually do? Here's the good news. You can engage with God where you are right now, just even where you sit. Believe in true trusting faith. Place your faith, your hope in Christ, like all of your eggs are in this basket. You're not trusting yourself or anything else. You're trusting Christ and cry out to him. You have access to God even where you sit by faith in him. You cry out to God. You ask, God will answer. You ask for salvation. God will give grace. Come and receive Christ. Well, here in just a moment, we're going to partake as a church. Um, remember that scripture tells us that we're not to partake in an unworthy manner. If you are not a born-again believer this morning, we want to give you the warning not to participate in this because Scripture tells you not to. Actually, warnings of judgment that it says. What we're going to do here is we're going to take about just 60 seconds of silence, give you one more chance to pray, get your heart in a humble, uh, worshipful place before the Lord. I'll close in prayer and then give some instructions for what we're going to do. So let me invite you to pray.
Our Father in heaven, Lord, we're sinners. Um, and even as your people who love you and worship you, we're grieved over the fact that we break your commandments. We have ungodly desires, thoughts within us. Father, we long for the day when we will no longer do these things and we find it frustrating. Please forgive us of our sins. And Lord, we're not only sorry by the fact that we sin, we want to repent. We want to leave those sins. So help us in this. Help us as we eat. Help us in this act to remember and worship. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. <laughs>